Um, this evening, we are starting a, a new sermon series uh, called A Life That Says Welcome. A Life That Says Welcome. At HTC, we have a vision, a great vision, um, of every life bearing fruit for Jesus. And that is a vision of fruitful discipleship. And I wonder if somebody came up to you on the streets of Clapham and said to you, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What would you say? How would you explain to them what a disciple is? Um, And I'm going to give you uh, three tips, three pointers that you might want to use, uh, partly because it's quite helpful to have a think about that, but also because it puts what we're going to look at this evening in context. I would say that being a disciple of Jesus means being with Jesus, being in Jesus's presence, being rooted in Jesus, that being a disciple of Jesus means becoming more like Jesus. Jesus. We are becoming transformed into his likeness. And that being a disciple of Jesus means doing the things that Jesus did. Being with him, becoming more like him, and doing the things that he did. And it's that last one, doing the things that Jesus did, that we're going to be focusing on over the next three weeks. Because over the next three weeks, we're going to be thinking about a practice of Jesus. And we're going to spend three weeks looking at one practice. And it's a practice that as I've been preparing uh, this three-week series, it's a practice that has continually challenged me. I have wrestled with this practice. And I think it's because it's a practice that we need to radically rediscover as the church in the West. And it's the practice of hospitality. And we're going to look at this practice, as I say, over the next three weeks. Tonight, we're going to do a bit of an overview of the practice in Jesus' life. Next week, we're going to think about it in our lives. And finally, we're going to think about it in terms of the church and the church's mission. What does it mean for us as HTC? Um, If you've ever read all of the four Gospels, you will see that Jesus again and again refers to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And three times in the Gospels, there are sentences that begin with the words, the Son of Man came. Now, I don't know how good your Bible knowledge is. I don't know if you know how each of those three sentences finishes. Well, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Mark writes, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. As the writer Tim Tim Chester says, the first two are about the why. They are statements of purpose. Why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek. He came to save. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. The third is about the how. It's not a statement of purpose. It's a statement of practice. This is how Jesus came. He came eating. 
and he came drinking. Jesus lived a life that said, welcome, come and eat with me, come and eat around the table, eating and drinking with others. And hospitality is not a complicated practice at all. Everybody eats and everybody drinks. But hospitality can be uncomfortable. Because hospitality is about letting others invade your time and your space. By its very nature, it is a practice that allows interruptions. It's an ordinary practice. At its best, I believe that hospitality is a little bit mundane. I believe that it's a little bit routine because, you see, there's a massive difference, and we're going to look at this next week, between hospitality and entertainment. Hospitality can take the form of a dinner party, but that's not really what it's about. Everyone eats. It's an ordinary practice, but it's also radical. It's radical, and we're going to see that now in the life of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this ordinary, radical hospitality. And we're going to think about three meals that Jesus eats with others, starting with this one in Luke 5. So grab a sheet at the end of your pew, and we're going to read this together. Can somebody grab me a glass of water, by the way? Is that okay? I have got a very dry mouth. Thanks, that's great. Uh, Luke 5, verse 27 to 32. Let's read it together. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Cheers. I'm just going to drink. Eating and drinking, that's all about. Um, The story starts with an invitation. Jesus invites Levi to leave the tax booth and follow him. And we're going to see this as we look at the various meals that Jesus eats, that when Jesus makes space for others, when Jesus welcomes others, something happens. Something happens in ordinary radical hospitality when there's this blurring between who is a guest And who is a host? It's very clear when we entertain, it's very clear that somebody is a host. But in hospitality, sometimes we're not sure who is the guest and who is the host. Because Jesus says to Levi, follow me. So you think Jesus is the host. But then Levi sets the banquet for Jesus. And let's be clear about that. That the reason why that happens is that Jesus can't set a banquet for Levi because Jesus didn't have a home. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. So Levi hosts Jesus in his home. And in verse 30, we see that a conflict arises from the gathering. 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are not happy. They're annoyed and they're grumbling. They complain to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And just notice on your sheet, notice the difference between verses 29 and verse 30. Luke calls them tax collectors and others. The Pharisees describe them as tax collectors and sinners. A wise friend uh, once gave me a very brilliant piece of advice, and that was when you come across conflict in any area of your life, stop and ask one question. And the question you should ask is, what is the story behind the story? Because in most, most situations of conflict, what is going on, what is apparent, is not actually the issue. There is something behind the story. And it's worth asking that question about this meal in the gospel. What is the story? What is actually going on here? Because as we start to unpack that, we start to understand why hospitality was such a key practice of Jesus. And to understand this story really well, we have to rewind 400 years we have to go back to the time before Jesus when the Israelite people, the, the people of God, were taken into exile, taken to Babylon. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know some of the stories about that. If you don't, don't worry. Um, now, what happened at that point in Israel's history was some very key incidents, very key things occurred. The temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. The sacrificial system was put to an end and the priesthood was wiped out. Now, if you know anything about Judaism at that point, you'll know that all of those things are quite important. You kind of needed a temple, you kind of needed a priest, and you kind of needed somewhere to go and give your sacrifices. So the pastor and teacher, John Mark Homer, who's, been looking, who's looked at this, has gone, well, that's going to cause some problems, because what happens if you are a slave in Babylon? You are a Jewish slave in Babylon, and you want to be a Jew. You want to practice your faith. Well, how do you? You can't go to the temple. There's no priest. You can't give your sacrifices. What do you do? What do you do? So 400 years before Jesus, the rabbis at that time reorientated the framework and they said, actually, that's okay, because what's going to happen is this. The temple is going to become the home. The altar is going to become the dining room table. The priest is going to become the patriarch, the father of the family. And the sacrificial system becomes about the ritual cleanliness of meals. So what happens? The temple system moves into the home. And there, with a home and a table, and a father and a meal, you could practice your faith even in exile. Fast forward 400 years now, back to Jesus' time, and some of the Jewish people are back in Judea. Quite a few of them aren't, but some of them are. But the Roman Empire is now in charge. So there is still an exile mentality. And the Pharisees are going around saying, what got us into the mess of exile was sin. So, guys, we've got a brilliant idea. What is going to get us out of the mess of exile, what is going to get rid of the Romans, is less sin. So if we can all have less sin, that would be brilliant. And the ideal scenario, guys, is no sin at all. And the way we're going to do this, the way we're going to achieve no sin, 
is we are going to abide by every single purity law in the book of Leviticus. But guess what? We've moved away from the temple system, so that means abiding by that in your home. So guys, the way the Messiah is going to come, the Pharisees were saying, the way the kingdom is going to break in, the Pharisees were saying, is your dining table needs to be pure. Your dining table needs to be kept clean and without sin. So what this meant is if you were a Jew in Jesus' time, no Gentile, no non-Jew, ever crossed your threshold. And they certainly never ate at your dining room table. You couldn't share table fellowship with anyone who was a sinner. And the definition of a sinner was anyone who did not observe the Torah. A huge boundary marker was set. It was a physical boundary. It was an emotional boundary. It was a spiritual boundary. It was a mental boundary. And that is what is going on in this story. The Pharisees are outraged that Jesus has taken this practice, this practice of the dining table, this practice of eating together, this practice of blessing. And guess what he's done? He has taken something that has been designed to keep people out. And he's made it something that welcomes everyone at the table. The whole idea was that we were trying to keep, the Pharisees are saying, we're trying to keep the identity of the Israelites pure. And Jesus, you've trashed the boundary. You've not just crossed the party line. The party line is no longer visible. You have used what was meant to be a boundary marker to keep people out. And you have used it to welcome people in. One of the the great kind of mistakes, I think, a little bit that we have done sometimes with the Gospels and and the New Testament uh, when it comes to the Pharisees, and I blame Monty Python, is that the Pharisees have become a little bit of a caricature in our heads. When you say the word the Pharisees, you kind of see Monty Python. You kind of see these, the fun police is kind of how we think of the Pharisees, which means we can kind of distance ourselves from the Pharisees quite easily. Um, And I think that's wrong, Because what's interesting about the Pharisees is we are wrong to think that the Pharisees disapproved of celebration. The Pharisees didn't disapprove of celebration. They didn't disapprove of parties or banquets. The Pharisees are mourning the absence of God. They are mourning the kingdom. They want the kingdom. They've read Isaiah. They know that the coming kingdom is going to be the biggest party ever. The problem here is not the party. The problem here is the guest list. The Pharisees want the Messiah to be a doctor, but they don't want him to hang out with the sick. The Pharisees are being religious and exclusive and unwelcoming and self-righteous and grumbling. And guess what? They wouldn't see it like that. They believe they are being entirely faithful 
to the message that has been entrusted to them. They can't see that God is doing something completely new. Jesus is not rejecting the purity laws of Leviticus. He is demonstrating that they're not needed anymore. He is the temple. He fulfills the temple. He fulfills the priesthood. He fulfills the sacrificial system. It's not needed anymore. In Jesus, we have full and complete access to God and forgiveness. It's grace. It's utter grace. But at that moment, as the Pharisees stand on the sidelines and watch the meal, they don't see grace. They don't see welcome. They are just plain uncomfortable. And it's a huge blind spot. They just don't get it. It's a huge blind spot. And guess what? As I've been looking at this passage and thinking about hospitality, Having blind spots is a really normal and really human thing to have. And one of the questions that I've been asking myself as I've been looking at this practice of hospitality is, um, where are mine? Because the Pharisees had huge ones, but so do I. So do I. If we are to live a life that says welcome, I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves individually And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves as a church is where are our blind spots? Where are those places where we're being ungracious? Where are those places where we are being unwelcoming, but we believe we are being so gracious and so welcoming? But it's a huge blind spot. The... um, The anthropologist Mary Douglas um, wrote a very famous essay. If you've done anthropology or sociology at university, you may may have read it. Uh, It's a very famous essay um, that talks about the fact that all cultures, in all cultures, meals represent boundary markers. And we can see it, Mary Douglas says, actually she uses the example of the New Testament. She says, we can see it very clearly in first century Judaism. But actually we can see it not just in the first century. We can see it throughout history up to today in Clapham. We can see it very intentionally in the Deep South in the States, pre the Civil Rights Movement. In the Deep South in the States, there were intentional boundary markers around meals. You could eat in certain restaurants if you had one color skin. You weren't welcome if you had another color skin. Sometimes in racist, through racism and apartheid, um, boundary markers around meals are very intentional. Sometimes they're not intentional, but they still set a marker. And actually, I think that's quite true in British culture. Uh, my mum is a working class Newcastle girl from Biker. Anybody who's old enough remember Biker Grove? Um, and that's where she's from. Um, and my mum married an army officer. So she was plunged into the formal world of army banquets, which posed two problems. Firstly, no one could make head nor tail of anything she said because she had a very thick Geordie biker accent. And the second one, I can't do her Geordie accent. I wish I could because it's brilliant. Um, The second thing she would say is that why do you need 46 pieces of cutlery to eat one meal? Um, There can be a level of formality in certain parts of British culture that can be intimidating 
if you don't know the rules. My mum would say the first time she sat at a formal banquet, she felt like she didn't belong because she didn't know which fork to use for the second course. It's completely unintentional, but it still sets a boundary. And when we understand that around culture, when we understand that the practice of eating together, of welcoming others at our table, that practice, the practice of eating and drinking, can be just as much about being exclusive as it can be about being inclusive. Even for us, even for us as those who would say we are Christians, we would say we love and know the Lord Jesus, we can still use hospitality to assert our boundary markers rather than break them down. A question that I've been asking myself, it's not been the most comfortable question, I told you I've been wrestling with stuff. A question that I've been asking myself as I've been writing this is over the last five months, six months, in my home or in their home or somewhere else, how many times have I chosen to eat with someone who is not from the same socioeconomic background as me? How many times have I chosen to eat with someone who is from a completely different cultural background to me? How many times have I chosen to have somebody in my home or to eat with someone who holds a vastly different worldview to me? And I'm not talking about in the process of people we meet in our workplace, but people that we would choose to spend our time with. Even in a progressive community like Clapham, I think we spend a good amount of our time eating and drinking with people who are just like us. Jesus used meals not as a boundary marker, but as a way of inviting people in. He lived a life that says, welcome. And I'm just going to go a little bit off-piste for a minute. Um, when I say that, Jesus lived a life that says welcome. Jesus invites everyone to the table. I'd love for you to have a sense of what that is doing in your spirit and your soul at the moment. Because one of the things that I'm very aware of is that as the church, we are meant to reflect the image of Christ. We are meant to be his body on earth. But there are times when, as the church, we don't do that very well. And there will be people here tonight who will have... There are people here tonight who the church will have made feel that they are outside the boundary. That they don't fit in the boundary markers that the church has set. And if that is you, and we had a very clear prophetic word this evening before the surface, that there is someone here who is around their mid-twenties who, when they were at university, had a disagreement over a theological issue in a church. And because of that disagreement, the church was deeply unwelcoming to them. If that is you tonight, or if that is your experience... I'm so sorry. I am so, so sorry. Because Jesus welcomes you 
at his table. Jesus welcomes you at his table. I need to go and grab another glass of water. <laughs> Jesus welcomes you at his table. Jesus loved to eat and drink with others. He loved to welcome people in. So much so that Jesus' enemies accused him of doing it to excess. They accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. And one of the things that I've loved um, watching the World Cup is Gareth Southgate's growing fan club, both male and female. Um, I love a man who can carry off a waistcoat in 30-degree heat. Um, and uh, Gareth Southgate is proving to be a great leader. And one of the, a lot of the commentary is about how this is demonstrated by the young team that he is managing, that you can see they are managed by a great leader. They are being known, in a sense, by him. And now, before I make my next point, just one thing to say. I am not comparing Gareth Southgate to the Messiah, okay? I'm going to make a link to Jesus here, but that's not what I'm doing. We may do that. We may do that after Wednesday. And there's plenty of time. There will be plenty of time. If we get into the final, he will be the Messiah. Uh, not. Um, but what I'm saying, in Luke um, chapter 5, verse 33, the Pharisees say to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and often offer prayers. The disciples of John the Baptist fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, your disciples, eat and drink. Now, it's meant as a criticism. It's meant to be barbed. But what it tells us is that as a great leader, Jesus' followers are following his example. They are eating and they are drinking. They are known for one thing. And do you notice again what it is? They're not known for fasting. That's John the Baptist's disciples. They're not known for prayer. That's a little bit embarrassing. Um, they are known for eating and for drinking. They are known for their hospitality. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he is at a meal, or he is leaving a meal. And eating together, yes, in one sense in the gospel, is a metaphor. It's a metaphor of what God is inviting us into. It's a metaphor of the feast. But Jesus didn't just come teaching about the metaphor. He invited people into grace. Hospitality doesn't just point to God's grace. When we practice hospitality, we enact that grace to others. We invite them in. And there's nothing that Jesus loved more than a long meal that stretched into the evening. Jesus invited people into the kingdom one meal at a time. And we see this at Levi's party, the passage we've just read. There are two worlds that are colliding here. Levi's party is pointing to the new and the gracious thing that God is doing. Jesus is saying, I've not come to call the righteous. This is a new thing. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying is offensive. And we know that because after the party, Luke says, the scribes and the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. Fury is a really strong word. The theologian Robert Karras points out that in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way 
he ate. Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. Wouldn't it be amazing that if, if we practiced hospitality individually and corporately in such a way that we provoked such a strong reaction? Now, that might be a very negative one. It might be a very positive one. That, that we did something we did something that made people sit up and notice and say, that is different. That is a new way of being. And we see the radical nature of hospitality in the actual word itself. The Greek word, the classical Greek word, is philo zinios. Philo, love, zinios, stranger or foreigner. And being a more precise language um, than English, in Greek there are numbers, numerous words for love. And philo, that love, is the love that you have for a brother or a sister. And the word xenos means stranger. Actually, it can also mean immigrant or foreigner. It's where we get our word xenophobia from, which is the fear of strangers or immigrants. So when you put those two words together, philo and xenius, what you have, hospitality means showing the love of a brother or sister to, to a stranger or foreigner. That's a little bit different than entertaining guests. There's a big difference there. Um, and next week, we're going to think about how this type of hospitality, the hospitality that invites the stranger, the person we've just met, into our homes. We're going to think about how that type of hospitality may well interrupt our schedules. How that type of hospitality may well mess up our homes. Whatever those homes look like, whether they are rented or shared or owned, whether those are six-bedroom houses or whether you have a single room in a shared house. That type of hospitality messes up our schedules. It messes up our homes. It's going to make a dent in our resources, and it's going to stretch our boundaries, and it's going to stretch our emotions. And in doing all of those things, my prayer is that as we wrestle with this question, as we think it through, as we pray, as we ask the Spirit to come and transform our hearts, what we will see is that through God's grace, that type of hospitality will turn strangers into neighbors and will bring neighbors into the family of God. Ordinary, radical hospitality starts in the heart. Starts in the heart. It's a heart posture. It's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of looking at others that understands just how much God has done for us. That Jesus came not to call the righteous, which as Jago said earlier, is only him. Jesus came to call sinners, that is all of us, to repentance. All of us, if we put our trust in Jesus, have experienced the lavish grace that he gives. And it is from that place that we can exercise this ordinary, radical hospitality. So should we stand? Should we stand?
And um, let's, let's thank God for his grace. And let's ask him to start that work in our hearts. And after I prayed, um, the band are going to play. And I would, um, I'd love you to, to sing. I think the band are going to play. Here is love. Here is love, yeah. Here is love, vast as the ocean. And I would love you to sing that song and ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to you. Speak to you about what he wants you to do in response to the lavish grace, the hospitality that God has shown us. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a gracious God. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus so that we could all experience and know that grace, that we could all find a seat at the table. And Lord, we pray this evening that our hearts would be challenged by your word, that our hearts would be transformed by your spirit. And Lord, where we have blind spots, where we can be ungracious and unwelcoming, Lord, we pray that you would come and show us them. Lord, come and speak to us now, we pray. And help us to be attentive to your spirit as we sing and as we worship.